This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And this afternoon, we are following two major breaking stories. The first on Capitol Hill. You're looking live at where House Republicans are meeting behind closed doors. Right now, they're tallying the results of a secret ballot where they are trying to decide who their next speaker nominee will be. Our teams are stationed across Capitol Hill. And assuming House Republicans are finally able to nominate a speaker after 10 days without one in the midst of two wars and a pending government shutdown, we will bring you those results. That is an assumption. Not sure if that's going to happen, but if it happens, we'll bring you the results. Our other major story, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is vowing this afternoon this is only the beginning of Israel's fight to destroy Hamas. At this time, one week ago, one week ago today, right this moment, it was just after 11 p.m. in Gaza, and roughly a thousand members of Hamas, which is the ruling government of Gaza, were preparing to invade Israel, to attack. They were going to infiltrate Israel by land, by sea, and by air, by paraglider to kill Israeli soldiers, to kill Israeli babies, to kill Israeli women and men in their beds, to kill Israeli seniors at a bus stop, Israeli young people at a music festival, hundreds and hundreds in total. The deadliest day for the Jewish people, literally, since the Holocaust. And now, now, nearly seven days later, that attack has resulted in hundreds more innocents dead, killed in Israeli retaliatory strikes in Gaza, strikes at the Israeli Defense Forces, claim are against Hamas targets. They say this is based on Israeli intelligence, though, of course, post-October 7th Hamas terrorist attacks, the quality of Israeli intelligence inside Gaza, that's a legitimate question, as an IDF spokesman admitted to us the other day. And while currently no Western leader challenges Israel's right to defend itself, few can answer the question as to what exactly the plan is, as all signs point to Israel ramping up an assault on Gaza to destroy Hamas, including what appears to be a pending ground invasion on Gaza. And when and if Hamas is destroyed, few can answer, what then? Israel's military dropped leaflets from the sky earlier today, warning the 1.1 million civilians living in northern Gaza to evacuate the area. That's nearly half the population of the entire Gaza Strip. Hamas, which embeds itself within the Palestinian population there, is telling the civilian population to not go anywhere. The United Nations says evacuations on that scale, 1.1 million, would be impossible to carry out, quote, without devastating humanitarian consequences. And there are already questions, of course, about whether Israel, having cut off food, water, fuel, and other supplies to the entirety of Gaza, constitutes a violation of international law. Israel's done that, they say, until the hostages that Hamas took are returned. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visited Israel today, where he was on hand to see a U.S. cargo plane delivering more U.S. weapons and munitions to support the Israeli military. Secretary Austin also spoke to CNN exclusively. This was his answer when asked about assurances from the Israeli military about avoiding Palestinian civilian casualties. This is a professional force that's well-led, so I'm sure they'll do the right thing. The Palestinian Health Ministry says that more than 1,900 Palestinians have been killed since last Saturday, more than half of which, the authority says, have been women and children. Israeli authorities put the total Israelis killed at more than 1,300. Let's bring in CNN's Clarissa Ward, who is in Ashdod, Israel. That's just north of the Gaza border. Clarissa, the Israeli military is warning 
the more than one million civilians in northern Gaza to evacuate, to go south. The UN says it's impossible for that to happen without major humanitarian consequences. That's right, Jake. And we've been talking to people in northern Gaza, chaotic scenes there as people desperately trying to move, no clear idea where they can go because simply put, Jake, they can't get out. The efforts that have been ongoing to build some kind of a humanitarian corridor have so far been fruitless. Uh, And so you see these scenes of people putting their lives into their cars or onto their backs, walking with no sense of where they will end up, of where is safe. Meanwhile, that death toll continuing to climb. According to the Palestinian Health Ministry, more than 500 children in Gaza among the dead. Uh, the, the UN Palestinian Refugee Agency called this evacuation order uh, from the Israeli military, quote, horrendous, and said that Gaza is becoming, quote, a hellhole. We actually spoke with a 22-year-old dentistry student, uh, Yara Al-Hayak. She is from that area in northern Gaza that has been directed to evacuate. She told us that they haven't left their home yet because they're afraid they might never be able to come back and they simply don't know where to go. Take a listen. I'm actually terrified. I'm trying not to show it, but it's all the situation around us, it's like they're saying that you could die at any moment. You don't know if I, I, I don't even know if I'm going to live for the next minute. So, yeah, it's really terrifying. I hear the voices of young children in your house, and how do you protect them from this? Yes, it is. It's actually terrifying of that, of just imagining if anything would happen to them and uh, when any bombing happened I could like see the look on the four-year-old uh, my nephew my four-year-old nephew he would look terrified so it's it's really heartbreaking have you lost any friends or family throughout the strikes of the last seven days uh, Yes, there's a friend. She actually got out from her house to her cousin's house. When she was there, the like the area were targeted. It got the house got bombed and she's gone. What was she like? She really liked to joke a lot, laugh with us a lot, even though and now. Uh, in in school, you know, even though in school we had tough times, she just always... She just always know how to make us laugh. Sorry. Don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. We just want peace. That's, that's it. And Jake, uh, the name of Yara's friend is Asma Abdulkarim Abbasale. She was killed, according to Yara, at 3 o'clock this morning in Khan Yunus. And just want to underscore that from the people we are talking today, to, to, we are talking to today inside Gaza, so many of them share 
that same feeling that you heard Yara express, they just want peace. We did ask Yara about her response to the atrocities carried out by Hamas, and she said she believes and prays that all civilians should be off limits, all civilians should be safe, Jake. Clarissa Ward, thank you so much. While we have generally been focused this week on the victims of the brutal Hamas terrorist attack on Israel, the deadliest day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust, our team here at The Lead has also been in touch with many people in Gaza, where, as you can just see from Clarissa's piece, the situation is dire. One man we asked to join us uh, told us he was trying to evacuate Gaza, but he didn't know where he would be by the end of the day. He told our producers, quote, you're lucky if I am still alive the next time you reach out to me, unquote. And that's, that's not hyperbole. Another man told us he had only 30 minutes left of battery on his phone and he could not charge it without power in Gaza. He told us the military, the Israeli military, had destroyed his home. So he's just sleeping on the ground. There is no food. There is no water. We have been in touch all week with Hanin Okel. You might remember her. She's the Palestinian-American woman uh, from New Jersey who'd been on the show Tuesday. She was stuck in Gaza City with her three children. At one point, um, we lost all communication with her, but this afternoon we did get this voice memo from her saying that she had managed to make it close to Gaza's southern border with Egypt. Take a listen. People left their homes, uh, everything. They left everything. I hope that everybody could make it out of here because it's not safe at all. People are still waiting for Egypt and Israel to open the southern border. The problem appears to be at this hour, Egypt refusing to open that border. CNN's Nada Bashir has a wider look at the situation right now in Gaza. I do want to warn you that many of the images we're about to show you are disturbing. As dawn breaks in Gaza, now under bombardment by Israel for seven days, a sinister warning from the skies. Pamphlets from Israel's defense forces telling all civilians in northern Gaza to evacuate southwards. We're seeing our children killed right in front of us. They're starving us of food, of water. We have no electricity, nothing. This isn't a life. And now they tell us we have to leave, but we don't know where we will end up. Hamas leaders have called on civilians to remain steadfast and stay put accusing Israel of engaging in psychological warfare. But families, desperate for some semblance of security, gather their belongings. And while they are unsure of what awaits them in the south, one thing is clear. There is no guarantee of safety wherever you are in Gaza. It happened to our grandfathers, and now it's happening to us. We are being forced out. Gaza is being destroyed. Nothing is left. It's a catastrophe. More than two million people live in the tiny besieged Gaza Strip, still under a blockade enforced by Israel in 2007. More than half of those are now being told to move. The Norwegian Refugee Council has characterized the evacuation order, which holds no guarantee of safe return, as an act of forcible transfer. In other words, a war crime. Meanwhile, the UN's Refugee Agency for Palestine says the scale and speed of the unfolding humanitarian crisis is bone-chilling. On the move are more than 1.4 million people in Gaza. These are ordinary Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip with their families, including pregnant women, children, children with disabilities. 
An ongoing siege means access to food and safe water is quickly running out. The UN World Health Organization has warned that hospitals here have only a few hours of electricity each day, pushing Gaza's already crumbling healthcare infrastructure to the brink of collapse. At the Al-Shifa hospital, the bodies of those killed in the airstrike lay shrouded outside. There is, doctors say, simply not enough space in the morgue. They were all innocent civilians, women, children. The airstrikes came suddenly and destroyed all our homes, with children still inside. And now we don't even know where we can bury our dead. Enough, please, enough. In less than one week, Israel has dropped more than 6,000 bombs on Gaza. The equivalent to the total number of airstrikes carried out during the 2014 Israel-Gaza war, which lasted 50 days. And while there continues to be widespread condemnation of the collective punishment the people of Gaza are being subjected to, there is every indication that this war will only intensify. And many here feel that the world has abandoned them. Neda Bashir, CNN. And our thanks to Nada Bashir for that report. Our focus is, of course, not only in the Middle East today, but also Washington, D.C., where just moments ago, House Republicans chose their next nominee for House Speaker. CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill for us. Uh, Manu, what are the results? Yeah, Jim Jordan just won his party's nomination to be Speaker of the House. He won a majority of House Republicans, but he is far short of the votes that he would ultimately need on the House floor to be elected Speaker of the House. That number that he just won, 124 votes from Republicans supporting him to become Speaker. He needed to clear a majority of votes of the members who were present. We believe there were 209 members. Congressman, what was the, the, was the total 124 to 81? Was that the number? I think that was the first count. All right, so, okay, so uh, that was Congressman Clay Higgins. We're just trying to get some information because this is all behind closed doors, Jake, this secret ballot election. And what we understand from multiple sources is that Jordan got 124 votes. We believe he has gotten more, more than 80 votes in opposition to him. So the, we were told 81 from several sources. We just want to make absolutely sure before we report that. But Congressman Higgins seems to believe that was the number two, 124 to 81. Once we get the final number, of course, we will report it. But the larger issue here is that Jim Jordan had indicated for some time that he needed to get 217 votes behind closed doors before going to the full house. He did not want to go through a messy floor fight the way we saw Speaker McCarthy did, then Speaker McCarthy do back in January, 15 ballots ultimately getting the votes to become Speaker. Jordan instead wanted to hammer this all out behind closed doors. It is very clear that he did not hear. So now what is the question? This is, this is how it could potentially play out. He was up against Austin Scott of Georgia. The question will be, what does Austin Scott do? Does he decide to step aside? And do Austin Scott supporters go and support Jim Jordan's candidacy? And does that increase his total closer to 217? Or does another candidate potentially try to jump in if Jordan decides to step aside? All big questions at the moment. Still uncertainty, Jake, then, about what exactly Congressman Jordan's next steps. Congressman, Congressman, was the, Congressman, was the vote 124 to 81? 
Something like that? Okay. So as you can tell, people are, have different recollections of what happened. You know, Congressman Self just said that 124 to 81, something like that was the vote. So we're trying to get a better sense of what the next steps were when we talk to more members as they come out here. But at the moment, Jake, Jim Jordan winning the Republican nomination to be Speaker after this week of a yeah. tumultuous moment in the House, completely paralyzed, unable to do anything until they elect a Speaker. Can they do one now, elect one now? Still a question, despite Jordan's win here to win the nomination. So, Manu, my conversations with House Republicans that are reluctant to support Jim Jordan for Speaker uh, have centered on, on two issues. One of them, obviously, is the Ohio State University scandal involving the former uh, doctor who has since died by suicide, I believe, who would molest uh, the players. And Jim Jordan was the assistant wrestling coach, and he claimed to not know anything. And there have been players, including this week, who, who said they didn't believe that. That's one of the issues. And the question about whether or not Jim Jordan would be a, a good representative for the party, given that scandal, given questions about that. And the other one, um, Liz, former congresswoman and former uh, House Republican, uh, conference chair Liz Cheney tweeted earlier today. She said Jim Jordan was involved in Trump's conspiracy to steal the election and seize power. He urged that Pence, the vice president, refuse to count lawful electoral votes. If Republicans nominate Jordan to be speaker, they will be abandoning the Constitution. They'll lose the House majority and they'll deserve to. There are a number of Republicans from districts that President Biden won uh, that probably are fearful of being tagged with Jim Jordan as the speaker. He, he could be radioactive to them, I would think. What, what's your impression of why there are dozens of Republicans reluctant to support him? Well, one reason is that, Jake, it's uncertainty about whether Jim Jordan can help them keep the Republican majority. There are some members from swing districts who are, in fact, supporting him. So we'll see ultimately how some of those members broke down. But there are also just a, a lot of animosity towards members on the right who essentially ended Speaker McCarthy's speakership. And ultimately sank Steve Scalise. And they simply do not want to reward what they consider bad behavior, rewarding those members who tanked the, the sitting speaker and then getting, getting behind the person that they are backing for the speakership. A lot of those members on the far right are backing Jim Jordan. That is where his strength is. And the question too, Jake, is if, if Jordan decides to go to the floor without having the 217 votes, does he dare those more moderate members to vote against him on the floor? Kind of a reverse of what we saw back in January when the conservative members were the ones who voted against McCarthy time and time again until McCarthy ultimately won that fight. Now, will Jordan do that with the more moderates, and will they stand up? Those are all huge questions at this moment, but really the, the biggest one is what Jordan will do despite winning the nomination well short of the 217 votes. How does he press ahead here, Jake? All right, Manaraja on Capitol Hill. Keep us posted. Coming up, what sources tell CNN about activity picked up by U.S. intelligence just days before the Hamas terrorist attacks last Saturday. Stay with us. And we're back with the world lead sources tell CNN that U.S. intelligence signaled a potential clash between Hamas and Israel in the days before that terrorist attack by Hamas. CNN's Alex Marquardt helped break this reporting. Alex, tell us, what did the intelligence show exactly? Well, Jake, there were a series of intelligence reports that had varying degrees of, of different kinds of warnings 
Two of them were American. One was Israeli in the days before this horrific attack. Um, starting on September 28th, there was a U.S. intelligence report that said that there was a, a, a likelihood, a possibility of cross-border attacks by Hamas into Gaza that would include rocket fire. Um, a couple days later, on October 5th, uh, there was a CIA wire that went out that spoke uh, quite generally about the possibility uh, of Gaza violence. And then one day before the horrific attacks on Saturday, uh, U.S. officials disseminated a, an Israeli report that indicated that there was uh, some kind of unusual activity among Hamas members. And of course, now we know what happened uh, on October 7th. None of these warnings pointed specifically tactically to this, uh, the, this, the scope of, of, of the attack that happened, the brutality, the lethality. And, and there's a good chance, Jake, uh, that even Hamas was surprised by what it was able to pull off. Um, but what we've heard from both Israeli and American sources is that these uh, these warnings might not have take, been taken as seriously as they should have been uh, because there was an there was a, a complacency in Israel. There was an assumption that were something to happen, um, that it would look like a flare up that we'd seen before, that rockets would be fired into into Israel, that they'd be intercepted by the Iron Dome. It would last for a couple of days and then die away. But the culmination um, of these successive reports, combined with warnings from other Middle Eastern allies that there was a significant buildup of weaponry, uh, that there was a real fury building among the Palestinian population, that begs the question of whether or not Israel and then you, the U.S. really should have expected something bigger to happen. And we are hearing from uh, American officials and, and, and people familiar with the intelligence that the onus really was on Israel, that Hamas and Gaza, that's really their backyard. They have the best collection um, on, 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 on Gaza. Um, and that there, there might have been a better sense from the Israeli intelligence than passed on to U.S. intelligence that this kind of thing could have happened. It's right in their charter to destroy Israel. I mean, it's not a, it's not a surprise, you know. No, but the fact that they were able to, you know, fly over the wall and break through the wall, that certainly was a surprise uh, to, to Israel. Yeah, Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. I'm going to ask a top Israeli official about uh, our new reporting on this U.S. intelligence. That's next. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with more on the war in the Middle East and the new CNN reporting that sources say that U.S. intelligence signaled vaguely a potential uh, attack or unusual behavior from Hamas uh, regarding Israel in the days before the ter terrorist attack by Hamas a week ago tomorrow. I want to turn now to the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, Gilad Erdan, 
Mr. Ambassador, uh, what do you make of this new reporting from CNN that the U.S. had some warnings of potential violence uh, from Gaza towards Israel, um, but Israel failed to understand what Hamas had in store? This comes from uh, on top of um, some reporting since acknowledged from the Netanyahu government that, that Egypt had passed on some uh, warnings as well. First, thank you for uh, having me. Uh, obviously, we everyone understand that we were surprised, but uh, and we have many things to investigate. But we can wait, and everything will be postponed for uh, the time after the war. Because now our main goal is to obliterate Hamas's terror capabilities. We are not looking to, uh, you know, uh, blame anyone or blame one another. It's very important for us now to be united. That's why we established a unity government uh, two days ago. Uh, so, yeah, we were surprised, but this is not the time now to, uh, to investigate it. So there is some reporting out there that suggests that President Biden and the Biden administration are urging, urging Israel to hold off on any ground incursion until there has been a humanitarian quarter established so the innocent Palestinians in Gaza can escape. And the United Nations, as you know, is saying that Israel's warning to the 1.1 million citizens in northern Gaza to evacuate uh, is going to be impossible to do in any short term um, because it's just too many people uh, in the immediate future to, to get out in, in, in any near period of time. Well, I, I don't know of any pressure uh, coming from the uh, Biden administration to hold our operation. Uh, we said that we will use every mean at our disposal to eradicate Hamas's terror capabilities, and we meant it. The prime minister gave an early, more, uh, um, early warning a few days ago uh, already. And sadly, it's very sad because I, uh, I'm, 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 I really feel sorry for uh, the suffering of uh, the people of Gaza, but we should all remember, they elected Hamas 18 years ago. Hamas is the only one responsible for everything that is happening there. Hamas embedded uh, its terrorist infrastructure within the civilian population under uh, public uh, facilities, and there's no other way to eradicate Hamas terrorist capabilities and ensure that these atrocities would not happen again without without eliminating it and uh, without temporarily uh, evacuating the, uh, the the population but i i think we should all remember another thing uh, jake evacuation temporarily evacuation is reversible but the loss of life is not and right now we cherish life and what we're what we're doing now is making sure that no more people would lose their life in the future. So you just said something about the people of Palestine or people of Gaza, rather, electing Hamas in 2007. And it is true. They elected Hamas in 2007, which is 18 years ago. And Hamas has not allowed an election since then. Hamas is a terrorist organization. They rule with guns. They rule with terror. President Herzog said this week that it is, quote, an entire nation out there that's responsible. It's not true, this rhetoric about civilians not aware, not involved, it's absolutely not true. They could have risen up 
They could have fought against that evil regime, which took over Gaza in a coup d'etat, murdering their family members who were in Fatah. You, you basically just insinuated something similar. And I, I guess my question is, if Hamas is a terrorist group, which it is, but if it is, then how can you hold all 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza responsible for what Hamas did? Don't you think that they rule by killing people who oppose them? I mean, how seriously can you hold? We, can you we ex- do not. We, how seriously yeah, can you can expect explain. the Palestinian we, people, half of, half of whom are kids, by the way, how seriously can you expect them to rise up if they are brutal murderers, which they are? We do not uh, expect them uh, to rebel. We cannot decide for themselves how to live their life, but we are fighting for our life. We just lost 1,300 Israelis who were slaughtered and butchered and massacred. And like any other normal country, we have to ensure that such atrocities will not happen again. I really, I feel sorry for many people in Gaza, like uh, I am sure that in Germany, in Nazi Germany, there were also Germans who were not involved. It's not about retaliation. It's not about revenge. We don't want to punish them. We just need to obliterate Hamas's terror capabilities. And sadly, there is no other way to do it. We will try again uh, to to protect the civilians and try to mitigate uh, the loss of life. That's why we ask for the evacuation uh, of the uh, civilian population. We're not going to harm anyone who is, un, who is not involved in terror activities. But sadly, that is the situation right now in Gaza. It's a threat against our future. Right now, some people will tell you it's an existential uh, threat because their long-term goal uh, is to attack us from different uh, multiple fronts, as we started to see right now on our northern uh, border coming from uh, Hezbollah. Right. So that's the our way, that's the only way to survive for the state of Israel. And I think that the the civilized world should understand that we are fighting not only for Israel. We are fighting against a jihadist, uh, ter- jihadist genocidal terrorist organization, exactly like ISIS and exactly like the Nazis. So, lastly, sir, there has been talk of trying to open the Rafah Gate in the south. And that can only be done jointly with Israel and Egypt. My understanding is that the holdup is Egypt, that Egypt is refusing to, to open it. Uh, that is obviously key to letting the, I think there are something like 500 Americans stuck in Gaza, but in addition, obviously, hundreds of thousands of innocent Palestinian children, women. When can that be opened so a humanitarian corridor can be opened so people can get out? Uh, before this invasion, we, we I, I understand. We we are holding uh, close uh, talks now with the UN, uh, with its agencies, and also with the Egyptians. And I hope uh, that uh, the Rafah border crossing will be open uh, very soon. I, I really hope so. Israeli Ambassador Gilad Erdan, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Jay. As an Israeli ground invasion in Gaza appears imminent, how complicated that assault could be. That's next. 
Welcome back. Uh, we're here with retired Brigadier General Mark Kimmett, who's also the former Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs and also former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Middle East Policy in the George W. Bush administration. So, General Kimmett, uh, 1.1 million Palestinians live in Gaza, northern Gaza, which Israel has just said they need to evacuate further south, uh, south immediately. How realistic is that? Um, in the time that they've been talking about doing this in one or two days, almost impossible. The UN is right about that. Uh, that massive humanitarian crisis that, that would create, I don't think it's going to happen at all. So um, let's talk about uh, the workable plan, if Israel has one, for any sort of ground invasion. Uh, it's worth making some sort of historical comparison to see what Israel might be entering into if they go into Gaza. Yeah. I think the best comparison for an American is Fallujah. If you take a look at the size of this city and the fact that it took us three weeks just on the north side of the river to clear this area. This is in the Iraq war for the kids out there that don't yeah, remember. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that took three weeks. A couple hundred American casualties killed, about a thousand wounded. It's important to understand that, Ga that Gaza City is nine times the size of Fallujah. It's going to take months the casualties, more than likely enormous. And how would you say, if, this, if I can ask, that the, the, the Iraqi forces that the U.S. was fighting here compared to Hamas? Well, uh, first of all, uh, we were fighting primarily what we call former militants, former Saddam regime. They were fighting pretty much like soldiers do. Uh, the civilians were generally protected. They weren't used as human shields. It was more conventional war. Hamas shows no does not adhere to any rules at all. It is slaughter. It is brutality. Um, Secretary Austin, the defense secretary, is in, uh, is in Israel today. We know he's been me meeting with Israeli military leaders. Do you think Austin is telling them to slow it down until there is some sort of viable plan for what they do in Gaza and then what they do, assuming that they are able to defeat Hamas, what they do after? Yeah. Yeah, the concern I have is when I heard uh, uh, General Austin talk, he said, we must show resolve. He never used the word restraint. And I think that that would have been the opportunity to use that word in front of the world to indicate that the United States was talking about restraint. I don't think, I think all, as long as they adhere to the, the laws of land combat and the Geneva Convention, I think all of it's open game. All right, General Kimmett, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Let's get an update now on our breaking news where Republicans who are trying to elect a new House Speaker but really are having quite a difficult time just tallied the votes of a second secret ballot. CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill. Manu, what are the results here? Yeah, not good news for Jim Jordan here. He had hoped to get 217 votes to try to show that he can actually get the support to be the next Speaker of the House. He was short of that. In fact, we were told that the vote was 152 to 55. He basically, the second question here was how many people would actually vote for him on the floor. He lost 55 votes. I'm going to ask Congressman Kevin Hearn here right now. Oh, here's the Speaker. Kevin McCarthy. Mr. McCarthy. Mr. Yes, 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 yes. Can, can Jim Jordan continue to run here? Yes, yes, yes. yes. But he only got 152 votes. Yeah, but uh, he'll, he'll get there. I, I, don't, I don't see a problem with him not getting there. I think, uh, look, people have been here a long time. We've now elected a speaker designee. I think people can go home, be with their family, come back. And, you know, 
he can be able to talk to those that doesn't, I think we'll be able to get there. I mean, how, I mean, what makes you so confident? I mean, that's yeah, more than 50 votes. What is he going to have to do? Because I've been through this many times. I, I see where I see where we're at. I see where the conference is. I mean, um, Steve only had 110. 155 is a lot more than 110. You know, if Steve was started, he thought he was going to start at 150. That's why I thought that had a challenge. So he's a much stronger position. Look, I came in. What did I have? 180 some. You know, we had struggles. 88. So. Um, I think that was more than, than uh, what did Paul have? Paul had a little less than that or something. Pelosi had less around time. So I, I see it coming to Why first. do you think members have so many reservations, 55 members have so many reservations of Jim Jordan right now? I don't know so much of it as Jim Jordan as it is maybe with the eight who 4% caused this whole problem and all the Democrats. I think that's more the reservation. People just don't feel like they should have new leadership. That's why? Well, I don't think about new leadership. I just think they, they saw... Eight people work with all the Democrats to disrupt the country, and I think that that's a real problem. That people have. How do you get past that? How do you how do you get past that? I mean, it, it's, it's not easy. I mean, it's a tough job. Would you be making qualified members vote for Jordan on the floor, or would you be? Is no, I, look, I, I, th I think given the time, they probably have some more questions. Things moving fast, so it gi it gives um, the speaker doesn't need time to sit down and talk to them, earn their vote. I think well, that's the time to get. I don't think I don't. No, I don't think it'll take 15 rounds. But, 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 I think we'll be able to get on the first one. But, really but, Congress cannot do anything at the moment. Everything is stalled. Is it time to make clear that Patrick McHenry has more power, give him more power, the interim speaker, in order to allow legislation to advance? Should the House do something about that? Well, I always believed he did. Unfortunately, when all the Democrats got together with eight Republicans and stopped it, the first thing they did was try to go to... Um, the parls and say that uh, that position didn't have any power. So they've really stymied, they brought chaos to Cong Congress and now they tried to stymie our ability to have continuity of Congress, which I think is a real problem, what the Democrats have done. So is it I think he just has to sit down and talk to him. I think they'll be there. But why do you, I mean, you really don't think there should be another candidate, a consensus candidate? Is there a consensus candidate at this point? How many people have we gone through? You know, um, I, I think I think we'll be able to work this out, and I, I feel comfortable that we'll get there. I mean, how do you think this reflects on the GOP right now? This whole episode. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, if you think, if you think from a GOP perspective, eight Republicans led by Gates worked with every single Democrat. That's Swalwell. That's Schiff. That's Omar. Uh, that's Tlaib. That's Al to, to bring chaos with the whole concept of being upset because we paid our troops. Our troops got paid today. Could you imagine? Being somebody in the armed services in the Middle East on your aircraft carrier right now, questioning whether your family's going to be able to pay the rent, that, that's what they wanted. That's, that's, what the, that's why they wanted to throw me out. But you know what? I'm more than willing to fight for our American public, and especially for the troops. And what does this do to your swing district Republicans? All of this. What does it do to the 18 members from that, Biden districts? Well, all, that all the Democrats voted to try to bring chaos? I, I think. No, I mean, that, you're, you're, that you guys are, you can't govern. That you can't govern. You can't elect a speaker. I don't know. We've done, I don't know. We, we, we passed the Parents' Bill of Rights. We passed to secure the border. We passed to make us energy independent. So it's far different to what the Democrats. I mean, the Democrats are over there fighting about whether they could even stand with Israel. I mean, you've got a. But you guys can't even act on an aid package to Israel because things are stolen. Ask me a question. You have a leader of the Democratic Party in Hakeem Jeffries that still says no comment when it comes to the questions of what Tlaib says. Can you believe that? 
if they cannot stand with Israel, if they can't publicly say that it is wrong that they think that Israel is an apartheid nation or that us providing um, money to Israel is wrong, I don't understand how someone runs on that table. But, but it's going to be hard for you guys to pass an aid to You can't pass aid to Israel, sir. Oh, 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 oh. And I just lost my audio here, Jake, so I'm probably going to toss it back to you, other than saying that, as you can hear from the speaker there, the former speaker, that the votes are not, uh, that he believes that Jim Jordan is going to still try to uh, push through here and try to get the votes somehow, but very far away from getting 217 votes. Jake, back to you. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Keep us posted if the House Republicans are ever able to elect a House Speaker. It's been 10 days without one for the first time in the history of the United States of America. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Nearly one week after the heinous October 7th terrorist attacks on Israel by Hamas, we are learning more about how Hamas's heinous assault unfolded. Ohad Yahalomi, his wife Batsheva, and their three children lived in near Oz, that's a kibbutz in southern Israel, just outside the Gaza Strip. And then Hamas attacked. Batsheva managed to escape with her two girls, but Hamas kidnapped the family's 12-year-old son, Eitan, 12 years old. He's still missing, as is the father, Ohad. Ohad's sister, Efrat, and Efrat's husband, Mark, join us now. Mark and Efrat, I'm so sorry to hear of the horror that your family went through, is continuing to go through. Uh, Mark, tell us about Ohad. Tell us about his wife and, and the three kids. Well, Ohad is really the son of the place where he lived. He grew up, you know, the whole family grew up in the southern Israel, in the desert. He was really a nature person. He lived in that area. He grew up there. He decided to build his house uh, in that beautiful area together with the family to raise their kids there. And they just lived and the rest kids, the rest animals, they, and the family should live. And they, they say that the place is a heaven. It was a heaven. We visited there. It was really a heaven. It was a good community uh, which helped each other live together like in how did you learn about what happened to them? And can you describe at all um, what it was like, what, what, what it was like hearing about this horror? Well, actually, it was, you know, here in the, where we live, it was the last Friday night after we had a lovely uh, dinner with our family. And uh, then uh, Fred's mother called and said that, you know, she is in, in the shelter in her uh, home in the central Israel. And we said, I, I kind of felt, okay, that happens. That happens from time to time. There are some rockets, barrages, and people go into shelters. Sometimes they're longer, one again. But then we started to look a little bit at the news and uh, started to see really uh, things that we couldn't believe. We see people uh, kind of filming Hamas cars and, and uh, militants in the middle of the Israeli city, towns of Zderot and others. And then we started to really get concerned because we know that Ohad and his uh, family, they live right on the border with Gaza and seeing uh, militants and terrorists just going around and shooting at random in, in places like Zderot. We thought, okay, what's going on in Neroz? We, uh, it's stressful. And we started to communicate over WhatsApp with, with them 
uh, try to communicate. Initially, the communication, well, they said they didn't communicate a lot, but they said we are okay. And we've seen that our messages arriving there. And then suddenly at one point, about it was uh, about it was about 10 or 10 15 a.m. in Israel, both of Bacheva and Ohad phones or WhatsApp was cut off. They didn't receive any messages. In the first few hours, we kind of thought, okay, maybe they, you know they just cut the communication there. It's a chaos. The cellular tower doesn't work. It's overloaded and whatever. We were hopeful that really nothing uh, bad would happen. Effie was already told, my family is is gone. I I, I know that. I have I have it in my guts. I said, mm. no, it cannot be. It's just again. I'm an engineer. It's uh, I know that cellular towers. Uh, break down sometimes and then about a few hours later we uh, we got a, a message from Bacheva that she managed to escape and she told us the story I mean the, the horrible story that uh, and she at that point she was talking in kind of detached voice that she uh, doesn't doesn't even seem that she believes herself it's, it's a story from I don't know I, I I would hope that it's a Hollywood movie that will resolve it, it itself within a good, with a good ending with a couple of hours. Yeah, does not. And let, let's, let's I want to put up put a picture of of, of Aton back up if we could this, this innocent twelve year old boy Mark, you're an American tell us tell us about Aton um, if you can this sweet innocent twelve year old he's done nothing wrong to anybody. Um, you can see t- tell us about him. You can see, I mean, you can see yourself. It's the sweetest. He lived his happy life in the nature, right? He was going with his parents uh, to, and we worked many times with him and their family, now kids, to you know, to look at, uh, I don't know, scorpions at night and uh, watch the nature there and, and the camels in the farm nearby. I mean, it's, it's a boy that likes, loves, loves his family. He... To talk to him, it's a, it's a pleasure. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Look at his smile. It's it's not something that you can uh, imagine that somebody will want to harm. This this innocence, it just uh, absolutely senseless. Afrad and Mark, uh, I don't know what to say. I hope o- Ohad and and Eitan come home soon. I hope they're safe, and I hope they come home to you soon. Thank you so much for joining us. We are really, we are asking that the, today, that's the main point, you know, that they will brought home safe and sound. And we really ask the world leaders have a lot of leverage to, to bring this about. And we are asking this should be the main purpose. There's yep. so many of them. Thank yep. you. Especially the leaders in Qatar, which have close relationship with Hamas, but also those in Turkey and Egypt and Jordan and the UAE and Saudi Arabia, anyone who has pull, anyone who can do anything, an appeal to Hamas to release these innocent civilians, innocent people who are being held hostage in Gaza. Please, please do what you can. Thank you so much, Efrat and Mark. Appreciate it. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. In this hour, we are following two major breaking stories. The first on Capitol Hill, House Republicans mired in chaos, struggling mightily to try to select a new House Speaker. It's never been this difficult for any previous Congress in the history of the United States, but somehow this Congress, these Republicans, are finding it very, very difficult. In the last hour, Congressman Jim Jordan won the party's nomination, 
But that's just a majority of the majority. And there are still 55 House Republicans who say they will not support Jim Jordan, who is a fairly controversial figure, meaning his path to get the job remains pretty difficult. We're going to bring you the latest from Capitol Hill as there are developments there, if there are developments there. But we're going to begin with the big story in Gaza on the edge of an unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, That's the warning from the United Nations today as Israeli leaflets float down from the skies over northern Gaza. Israel is warning the 1.1 million residents in northern Gaza to evacuate ahead of what is likely to become a massive ground operation, which of course all began one week ago tomorrow when the group Hamas, which the United States and the EU and Israel considered to be a terrorist group, when Hamas committed its unspeakable terrorist attacks last weekend, murdering approximately 900 people in Israel, most of them civilians. The United Nations is warning that it is not so simple for 1.1 million Palestinians in the north of Gaza, population nearly the population of Manhattan, to just pick up their lives and move south in a day or two. In, for many reasons, including because the Gaza Strip has already been devastated by airstrikes and is packed with more than 400,000 people currently lacking shelter. As the UN puts it, Gaza already a, quote, hellhole is, quote, on the brink of collapse. Hamas is telling residents not to leave. Hamas is accusing Israel of engaging in psychological warfare. Of course, a reminder, Hamas embeds itself among the population of Gaza in order to give itself the most vile type of shield, its own civilians. If you ask the president of Israel, those civilians should have already overthrown Hamas. First of all, we have to understand there's a state, there's a state in a way that, was a, that has built a machine of evil right at our doorstep. It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. It's not true. This rhetoric about civilians not not aware, not involved, it's absolutely not true. They could have risen up, they could have fought against that evil regime which took over Gaza in a coup d'etat, murdering their family members who were in Fatah. Hamas, of course, is designated a terrorist group by Israel uh, and the U.S. As I noted, 2.3 million Palestinians live in Gaza. Roughly Roughly one half of them are under the age of 18. Today, the White House says it is urgently working with the Israelis and the Egyptians to find ways to get Palestinians, innocent Palestinians, out of Gaza and to get <clears throat> and to get humanitarian assistance in. So far, the government of Egypt has refused to allow the southern crossing to open. And while Israel could soon mobilize those 300,000 troops sitting in wait along Gaza's border, reservists, It is already carrying out local raids in the Gaza Strip, saying it is trying to eliminate terrorist cells and find the hostages who were taken from Israel. CNN has just confirmed that two of those hostages are a Chicago-area mother and her 17-year-old daughter, according to their rabbi. CNN's Nick Robertson is on the ground in Stirot, Israel. Nick, the United Nations says it's impossible for 1.1 million people to evacuate to southern Gaza. We just heard General Kimmet say that that's true. It's impossible. What sort of timeline do these civilians have to try to figure it out? 
Yeah, um, initially the UN was under the impression that the Israeli defense forces were giving the Gaza's population just 24 hours uh, to move south. That would have been until early tomorrow, it would seem. However, uh, the IDF clarified that later and didn't put a timeline on it. However, uh, the, the message has been communicated with urgency, and it is understood to mean with urgency that people should move south. Um, and if they needed perhaps other reasons, reasons to feel that they were in danger by maintaining, you know, by staying in their homes in the north. There, there has been here just in the past, just overlooking the north of Gaza, um, quite a sustained amount of missile and artillery fire, some very heavy uh, detonations going into the, the north of Gaza. Um, interestingly, significantly, that, 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 that salvo paused for about 20 minutes and during that time there was a very intense barrage of outgoing rockets coming from Gaza into Starot here, um, quite the most sustained we've seen perhaps in a couple of days. So it, it seems that even when heavy firepower is put down on the north of Gaza, Hamas can then come out and, and reply with rockets. But to your point, the civilian population, some of them are moving. But some of them are not because Hamas has told them not to. But the incursion earlier today, an indication of how Israel potentially getting ready for a deeper and bigger incursion. Israeli troops inside Gaza for the first time since Hamas's attack last Saturday. A limited local raid targeting Hamas searching for hostages, seemingly over by the time the IDF announced it late Friday. Not far away, northern Gaza's civilians are being forced into a life or possible death choice. Flyers dropped by Israel told them to flee south now, triggering concern at the UN. The United Nations considers it impossible for such a movement to take place without devastating humanitarian consequences. No deadline given by the IDF in their effort to minimize mounting civilian casualties. We are asking them to evacuate so that we will be able to continue to strike military targets belonging to Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Thursday night, the heaviest Israeli strikes on northern Gaza yet but Hamas is telling its residents to stay put, setting the scene for a potential blame game over the rising Palestinian death toll. Hamas actually gave a counter order to telling Palestinians in Gaza to stay at home. Uh, why? Because uh, having human shields they think protects them. It puts them in places where they will be in danger. It puts them in places where they're used in effect to try to protect uh, Hamas officials. Uh, or their equipment and infrastructure. All of this as Israel's troop buildup at the border grows, signaling a larger ground attack may be getting close. U.S. Secretary of Defense in country making sure the IDF has what it needs. I am here in person to make something crystal clear. America's support for Israel is ironclad. And not just military support. EU leaders came close to Gaza to see for themselves where some of Hamas's most brutal murders were executed. 
But inside Gaza, fears escalating about what the coming days will bring. Time is running out to prevent a humanitarian catastrophe. If fuel, water, food and life saving health and humanitarian supplies cannot be urgently delivered to the Gaza Strip. Apprehension on both sides of the border growing as troops ready for an expected longer and much more dangerous raid. So hearing the uh, jets overhead again, Jake, perhaps in response to those, uh, those rockets we heard fired out just uh, a few minutes ago. Nick, what about the uh, potential evacuations to Egypt? I, I just asked uh, uh, the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations about that. He said they, they've been working on that. I've been asking about this literally since last Saturday. Where are the Gazans expected to go? Uh, and if Egypt doesn't allow that border to open, there really is nowhere for them to go. Yeah, and I think the roots of this issue are, are, are deeply historical here. Um, we heard from the Egyptian president today saying that he didn't want the Palestinians, in essence, he didn't want the Palestinians to come out into Egypt because their homeland is in Palestine. They have to be on their land. That's the whole issue for Palestinians. You know, many lost their homes back in 48. Many lost their homes back in 67. We heard from the Jordanian foreign minister today as well saying that as well. Now, there's also an additional reason beyond Palestinians not giving up land uh, here in the West Bank or in Gaza, um, there would be a potential big political problem in Egypt for President Sisi if he had a million refugees show up, less about where they go in the desert, but the destabilizing of having a million additional refugees. And the same for the Jordanians, Palestinian refugees there. If they go there, it's destabilizing on Jordan, very destabilizing. And so these leaders in Egypt and Jordan are very concerned about letting Palestinians out for those two reasons, their own stability and the history of Palestinians not giving up their land. Mm -hmm. Nick Robertson, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in CNN's Aaron Burnett, who's in Tel Aviv. And Aaron, you've been traveling up and down the Gaza border. What are you seeing in terms of a possible Israeli incursion into Gaza? Well, I mean, Jake, I think it's, it's no question that Everyone along that border, Israeli civilians, Israeli military building up, expect that that incursion is imminent. And again, whether that's tonight or tomorrow or in a few days, unclear. But there is no question that they are ready to go. I mean, today at, at, at one area near the border, just a few miles away from the border, Jake, we saw, I mean, I, I, I want to say seven or eight just buses going in. They're busing soldiers in right now. Some of the ones they're busing in are not in the reserves. These are, these are full uh, soldiers. 50 or so a bus. That's just to give you a sense of the flow, constant flow going in and talking to some of them. It is let's go. This is not going to happen to us again. We are going to show the world that this will never happen again to the Jews of Israel. And they are they are ready. And I think that's the very clear message. I will also say, Jake, at some of these points, the readiness level of the troops, sort of the the uh, the energy, the anticipation was clearly higher than we've seen over the past uh, few days uh, in terms of helmets are on, uh, all PPE, personal protective equipment is on. They are ready. Um, you know, in some cases, uh, you, you had a hand on the trigger. They are 
they are ready to go. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're going to be going imminently, but they are there and they are ready. And when you talk about hundreds of thousands of troops like that, it's a lot. We see them being fed. We see them that some of them are bussed back out to spend the night, some of them 40 minutes away and coming back in. It's only so long that you can keep a tempo like that up before you have to make a decision on what you're going to do. Aaron, the um, State Department uh, is... Well, anyway, thank you so much. We have, to, we have to cut it off there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Um, new videos from the horrific uh, Hamas uh, terror, terrorist attacks uh, on the Nova Music Festival near Ram continue to surface. Uh, we'll bring you those next. Thanks. New videos from that horrific Hamas terrorist attack on the Nova Music Festival in Israel near Re'im continue to surface, showing just how civilians were targeted for murder. And we want to warn you, these images are disturbing, especially the picture I'm going to show you in about 10 seconds. The images come from a body cam video. Yes, some of the terrorists wore body cameras. The videos show them firing into Israeli versions of porta potties at the musical festival to kill anyone hiding inside. The bloodstains seen in the video suggest at least some of them were, in fact, occupied. And we do not know the fate of the victims. Early on, we knew the number of killed there was appalling. At least 260 people killed, attendees of a music festival. But as we heard from survivors and watched their videos, a clearer picture emerged of exactly what happened. CNN investigative producer Katie Polglaze put together this report, Six Hours of Horror in the Desert. And again, we warn you, many of these images are quite disturbing. It's 6.30 a.m. on October 7th, and things are getting into full swing at the Nova Festival in the south of Israel. We were having fun, you know, peace, love, good vibes, and an hour, an hour and a half after, we are running from bullets. Suddenly, the music stops. There's frustration, but no sense yet of the horror about to unfold. As news spreads of rocket attacks from Gaza, people begin seeking shelter, crouching close to the ground. But even this doesn't lead to outright panic. Rocket attacks visible here are a regular occurrence in this part of southern Israel. About 10 minutes later and some start heading to their cars. The decision of when and how to leave the festival would mean life or death for many. Some fled early to nearby bomb shelters. It's 7.10 a.m. and many are crammed inside this one to the north of the festival. But they've been followed. At 7.24 a.m., Hamas throw a grenade inside, causing horrific damage. This man, Noam, emerges stunned into the daylight. And it's not the only shelter to be targeted. 30 minutes later and further down the same road, Hamas militants are caught on dashcam footage outside another shelter. They throw a grenade inside. In total, CNN has identified four different shelters near the festival that Hamas attacked, all full of people. Over the next six hours, hundreds of civilians were killed, hunted down as they tried to flee the festival. By examining over 50 videos of that morning and speaking to 12 survivors, CNN has established that Hamas surrounded the festival, blocking three approaches to the south, north and west, forcing people to flee across the fields to the east, 
Even then, they were hunted. It's now 8.15 a.m. and Gal Bukshpan survives, along with others, by running across the fields. He's pictured here in the white T-shirt. Local police and security told them to drive east across rough land due to roadblocks on the main road, but many end up fleeing on foot. We were like ducks. It was like a range. People were running in their hundreds. Um, and you can hear the bullets coming. Were you seeing anyone get shot? Yeah, you can see people fall. It's 8.30 a.m. and as Gal and others continued running east, others running north met with more bullets and a police blockade, causing further panic. As a result, revelers start running back down the main road towards the festival, not knowing there are more militants just a few kilometres further down. On that same road, chilling dashcam footage shows Hamas militants shooting directly at an approaching car just an hour earlier. Those festival-goers that remained closer to the concert site hid behind anything they could find, even behind trees, waiting while the bullets closed in. Many did not survive. 260 are reported dead, but that toll could rise. Just three hours after the start of the massacre at 9.39am, videos emerge of some festival-goers already held hostage in Gaza. This man still wearing a festival wristband, and another visibly wearing the security uniform. Their fates remain unknown. Gal and others are still processing the trauma of what they went through. I know people who were like 12 hours in bushes and they didn't move. I know people who tried to hide and they died. Humanity never seen this in the last couple of hundreds of years, you know, since maybe the Holocaust. Um, but this is just, this is just horrific, horrific. It would be 10 hours until help arrived for some. Others are still missing, feared dead or held hostage in Gaza. The scale of this tragedy may grow greater yet after those six hours of horror in the desert. Katie Poglase, CNN, London. And our thanks to CNN investigative producer Katie Poglase for that horrifying report. Those six hours of terror at what should have been a joyous music festival... At least 260 daughters, sons, fathers, mothers, slaughtered, civilians. Just at that one scene alone, 260. Our coverage of that single horrific event continues in a moment. Hamas's brutality on Israelis has also impacted many Americans living here in the U.S. Some Americans have dual citizenship. I want to bring in Daniel uh, Zakin, he's a former member of the Israeli Defense Forces. His cousin, Jonathan Rahm, who, who was only 23, was killed by the terrorists of Hamas at the music festival on Saturday. Uh, Daniel, I don't know what to say. I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, what do you know Thank about you. how Jonathan was killed? So, yeah, we're all, we're all just devastated and horrified of what happened. Um, Jonathan was at the festival with his friends, and as soon as Hamas descended and started brutally murdering everyone they could see at the festival, uh, Jonathan, my cousin, sprung into action and um, immediately saw a girl having a panic attack and helped her escape. Uh, They entered a vehicle together, uh, started driving off, but with all the traffic and the chaos, they, they got stuck and Hamas started shooting at the vehicles. 
and they sustained heavy gunfires. So they got out of the vehicle and started running on foot. Um, and that was the last piece of information we, we got from, from the festival. You know, I've been reluctant to ask this of um, people in Israel because there's a chance they might not know about it. So I don't want to bring their attention to it. But you live in Atlanta, so I'm pretty sure you've seen it, that there are these students on campuses um, who are protesting for uh, Palestinian rights, which is a fine cause to protest for. But in that name, they are, you know, they have these uh, flyers that have the image of the Hamas paragliders who are the terrorists who came and and killed people like your cousin, um, which is not a fine cause to protest for. Those are murderers. Um, And I'm sure you've seen it um, because it's hard to escape it this week. And I'm wondering what you think when you see your fellow Americans. And again, protesting for Palestinian rights, great, do it. Those people deserve human rights. But when you, when you see people embracing the symbol of the Hamas murderers who, who murdered your cousin, what do you think? Well, first off, it's extremely shocking to see. And, um, and I, I don't know if these people are misled or if they actually believe what they're supporting is helping the Palestinians, but it, it's simply not. It's, um, they're supporting their own cause. The fight that Hamas is trying to fight isn't going to get the Palestinians anywhere. They're just causing more and more suffering in the region. Their goal is to annihilate the state of Israel. They say it. They they openly say it, and they're proud of it. And that's not something that's going to help bring dignity to the Palestinians. I think it's in everyone's best interest to get Hamas out of there and, you know, hopefully build a better future for everyone in the Middle East. You're remarkably restrained. Um, You served with the IDF from 2012 to 2015, and you say you could be called up to serve again. Yep, it's uh, it's still up in the air, um, but there's been remarkable support from reservists, and uh, everyone's overwhelmingly trying to help and be there. And and those who haven't been called to serve have been helping on the ground, bringing supplies, food, just the, the nation's really come together to... To, to, to fight this in every way, in every way everyone can help. Daniel, thank you for joining us. Um, thank you for sharing a little bit about who Jonathan was. May his memory be a blessing. Please stay in touch with us. Um, please, we want to keep talking about Jonathan, and obviously we wish the best for you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we'll be right back. With so many commercial carriers canceling, the U.S. State Department is adding charter flights to get Americans out of Israel. U.S. officials announced minutes ago that the first of those flights has landed in Greece. Still, thousands of U.S. citizens are in limbo in Israel as they wait to hear evacuation instructions from the U.S. government. Joining us now, Jessica Nagar Zandani. She's an American living in southern Israel. She has been in and out of her family's bomb shelter since Saturday and is desperately trying to get out with her kids. And Jessica, this morning, the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv told you to shelter in place and await further instructions. It's been hours. Have you gotten those instructions yet? It has been days. I have been calling them for the last three days when when I first was informed that they were going to be trying to get us out. Um, It's crickets. 
I mean, they have us on this in this step program um, for citizens that are abroad and it doesn't work. It basically it, it's for if you're traveling. So it doesn't actually activate if you've been here and you're not on an active um, trip. There's no notifications. So you're just calling. You're just calling the embassy, calling anybody who will take a phone call. And um, nobody has an answer. Today was the first day that I, the first phone call, first time in the last, um, since Saturday that I've had any kind of answer. Uh, and this was just a shelter in place because they don't have a way of getting us as of right now. There and is, it is tentative. So you and your, so, your husband plans to stay in Israel and fight. You, you're, you're dual citizens. What's the situation? I, so I was born in the U.S. I was born uh, and raised in Santa Monica, um, in California, and my husband is Israeli. Um, so he grew up here. He, you know, lived through the Lebanese War, fought, you know, in intifadas, everything. Grew up throughout the um, throughout the the Gulf War. Um, he, this is his home. This is where his his family is. This is where. Our nephews are who are uh, we were just informed uh, have gone into Gaza um, to start collecting uh, people that have passed um, victims of the terror. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's his it's a horrible conflict um, as somebody who has chosen to make this my home with him and grow my family and you know, we have a farm that I have um, nicely named my little America, but um, you know, it's, it's that pull in two directions. So I don't blame him for wanting to stay. I think he's probably the bravest person I know. And it is the hardest thing and hardest decision I've ever made to, to know that I'm going to say goodbye. And I don't know, I I'm hoping that I'm going to come home to, my home and my husband and our dogs and our family and our loved ones, but I have no idea. But right for I have now, no idea. But I know that my. But for right now, you want to get you want to get comfort. to the you want to get to the United States with your kids just for their safety. How, how are your kids doing and coping? Um, they're excited to see you. <laughs> um, they've they've actually been waiting up. Um, they they're coping amazingly well, but as we've learned from previous operations, um, you know, it's not when the bombs are falling so much, it's when they stop that you really have the best understanding of the true violence and, and terror and PTSD a lot of times in children that you really get that clearer picture because it's when everything is over that, and everything has settled that the real picture and the real reality of what has gone on and what has been they've gone through. Who's, so, this, who's this little sweetie? The idea of getting them out. This, this is Zoe. Hi, Zoe. How are you doing, sweetie? Hi. You're very pretty. Okay. You doing okay? <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. What? I'm lucky. I don't have school. You know, you, you I don't, don't like to do homework. You don't have to do homework. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's cool. not bad. That's not bad. Yeah. Okay. I like your yeah, pajamas. I'll we'll take that. Um, I, 
Get out the papers. Yeah. yeah. I don't need them. Okay. <laughs> um, how's the rest of your family taking it? I hear your sister's not so happy. No, she's, it, my sister's not happy. It, none of, it, how can anybody be happy? Yeah. It's, it's families, you know, it's the, the fear and the panic and the unknowing it, it's, it's, it's a life without control. So to the, you know, live coverages that, you know, from, from people's phones of, you know, the tragedies and going, you know, people posting stuff constantly. It's, it's not even, some of it, you know, it's fake and some of it's real and you just, it's the, it's the complete not knowing of what is next and what will come and how we'll get out or any of that, that is just, yeah, well, I'm going to, this, this is airing on CNN and CNN around the world, CNN International, and we'll send the link to, you know, to the National Security Advisor and the Deputy National Security Advisor and the National Security Council spokesman and the Secretary of State. And, you know, hopefully, I they, hope so. yeah, hopefully they'll click it and, and watch yeah, it and maybe they can help you. Before you go, I heard Zoe, there's a story about Zoe's doll that, that I'm supposed to ask you about. Oh, she has. Yeah, she has scissors. She's been making these paper dolls with these scissors. So um, when Saturday happened, um, as you can see behind me, um, there is still the tinfoil on our doors um, and windows. Um, the the anxiety and the fear and hearing the you know the shots outside. Um, we weren't close enough um, where they were able. In. We were very lucky that way. They they caught them outside of our Moshav, but um, you know, it was it was palpable, and she wanted to um, she wanted to fight. She wanted to keep her family safe, and she wanted to make sure that that she could do that. So she ran as fast as she could and went into her and grabbed her scissors. <laughs> And her bedazzled scissors with butterflies and everything and has been with them ever since. And she just carries them around. And yeah, let's keeps, get her on know, a plane. Let's she's get, ready. That's a, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Let's get her on a plane, though. I, that, I, I, think, I, I think a plane I think would be a better a better plan. I appreciate the spirit. Yeah, I think running. I think a plane yeah, would be a better plan. Scissors is, yeah. Yeah. All right, yeah, Zoe. Scissors is never Thank you so much, Jake. See you, Peanut. I, Take I it easy. Thanks. All right, Jessica. We're going to work on this. this. All right, but who's and who's this? Who's this? Who's this dude? Who are these other two? This is Gabby. These are. This is Gabby. Hey, Gabby. And that's Benny. Hey, Benny. All right, guys. Benny's birthday is. We're going to try to get you on a plane, okay? Um, We're going to try to bring attention to this. Yeah. Thank you, Jessica. To to spend it. Bye, Benny. Bye, Gabby. Bye. Thank you. Bye, Jessica. Yeah. Bye, Zoe. Bye. Bye. See you guys. Okay. Bye, guys. A live look at Gaza tonight. Another brief moment of calm in between the explosions we've seen light up this night sky all week. What CNN is learning about efforts to evacuate the innocent in Gaza before an Israeli ground invasion rolls in. That's next. Welcome back. My friend Aaron Burnett is in Tel Aviv. Back with me now. Aaron, tomorrow... Uh, it's the Sabbath, and it's also one week uh, since the horrific attack, the, the deadliest day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. What, what's the mood in Tel Aviv this evening? So, Jake, it's silent. 
It's silent. In fact, it is the quietest night uh, since we've been here, um, aside from one very, very large uh, explosion of an incoming rocket. The quietest night. And uh, Jan Pomerenz, who's here with me now, spends a lot of time here, family lives here. He was saying, you know, ordinarily in Tel Aviv, a more secular city on a Friday night, you know, you, you hear music, you hear dancing, you know, that it, this, is, this, is, this is a party town in many ways. And it is completely silent tonight. Nothing, not even a stray car going by with loud music like we've heard the past couple of nights. So it is somber. Uh, there is still that palpable sense of sadness and grief and rage and fear. And now, of course, of anticipation of what's, what, what everyone believes is coming next, of course, uh, with, with, a, with a ground invasion of Gaza. Speaking of which, you spoke with soldiers along the Gaza border. Uh, how are they feeling uh, as this conflict um, clearly is escalating? So, Jake, they're ready. They're ready to go in. You know, one, two soldiers drove by us today and very tight-lipped one said, you know, where are you from, CNN? And he leans out and he says, I want the world to know this will never happen to the Jewish people again. It's time to go. In sort of a tight-lipped, incredibly intense way, which reflects sort of the intensity of the move that we did see across the border. But they are ready. I was talking to a, an IDF soldier today, Jake, named Samuel. He grew up in Long Island, uh, moved back to Israel said he moved here because this has been the homeland for the Jewish people for 2,000 years, and he wanted to be back home. He is ready to go. And, and Jake, he also told me about how part of the way he feels that way, he said, and maybe I'll deal with this part of it later, is he's been recovering bodies. And he was talking about pining people, skeletons, frankly, Jake, skeletons, uh, in the burnt-out homes um, that he thinks they're going to find a lot more. Uh, talking about finding the bodies and the blood-bullet-ridden safe rooms and the houses that were still there and talking about how he's still finding bodies, children, just talking about those things. And again, just that intensity that he feels it is, it is time because he said this can never, ever be allowed to happen to the Jewish people again. And I think that reflects what we are hearing. Uh, even an IDF soldier who's a yoga instructor, he said, I believe in peace, but I am here and I am ready to go because this can never happen again. And that's, that's the mood, it's palpable, and they're ready, Jake. Aaron Burnett in Tel Aviv, thank you so much. So many of you watching uh, feel compelled to help with the humanitarian relief efforts. Uh, CNN is compiling resources. Head to CNN.com slash impact. You'll find a list of vetted organizations on the ground responding uh, to the humanitarian needs in both Israel and uh, for the innocents uh, in Gaza. That's at CNN.com slash impact. Uh, next, we're going to go back to Capitol Hill, where the House Republicans are in their disarray state with no clear leader, uh, despite the two major wars and the pending government shutdown. A vote on whether or not there's going to be a speaker vote, frankly, that's TBD. Um, Stay with us. We'll be right back. Our focus is not only on the horrors going on in the Middle East, but also what's going on in Washington, D.C. You might think during this time of two major horrific wars and this looming shutdown of the federal government in the United States that House Republicans would set aside their petty differences, get their act together. You would be wrong. This afternoon, House Republicans chose Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio to be their nominee for House Speaker, but so far he does not have even close to 217 votes. 
in order to win the speakership. CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill. Manu, what's next? Yeah, this is going to be a difficult few days for Jim Jordan, trying to convince 55 Republicans who voted in a secret ballot election against him. He, Jim Jordan, after he was nominated by the Republican conference to be the next Speaker of the House, that was just a majority vote. It was far short of the 217 votes he needs to be elected on the House floor. He took it to the test to his members, asking how many would vote against him on the House floor. 55 did. So now he's going to spend the next couple of days trying to convince them to come on his side. The question is, can he get to 217 votes before they want to go to the floor as soon as Tuesday to elect the next speaker and try to get the House out of a state of paralysis, something that happened in the aftermath of the ouster of Speaker McCarthy just last week. But in talking to some of those Republicans who are opposed to Jim Jordan, they are still planning to vote from another candidate, including some who plan to vote for Jim Jordan no matter what. That's what Carlos Jimenez as a Republican from Florida told me earlier this afternoon. We know who our real leader is. It was demonstrated in there. I'm more solidly behind McCarthy now than ever. I, uh, I think Kevin McCarthy is the one that needs to lead our party. Um, and uh, hopefully he'll, he will realize that um, for the good of the conference, for the good of the Congress, for the good of the country, he needs to put his uh, name back in. So Kevin McCarthy told me that he's planning, planning to still support Jim Jordan. But as you can hear from that congressman, even that comment is not convincing him to support Congressman Jordan. So, Jake, what is the option from there? If Jim Jordan does not get 217 votes, then they have to either get a new candidate who can get there. But no candidate has been able to do that. There is some talk internally about trying to prop up interim speaker Patrick McHenry, give him more powers to oversee legislation on the House floor. But the Republicans are still divided on that question as well as this chamber still paralyzed here, Jake. I'm reminded of the, the quote from the late great conservative humorist P.G. O'Rourke, the uh, the Republicans are the party that says government doesn't work, and then they get elected and prove it. Manu thanks so much. Join me this Sunday for State of the Union. I will speak with the White House's National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, Israel's Ambassador to the United States, Michael Herzog, Republican presidential candidate, former Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, plus former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney in her first interview in a year, as well as Republican Senator from Florida and the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Marco Rubio. That's this Sunday at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern, only here on CNN. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I will see you Sunday morning.